Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Friday, July the 6th, 2018. We're up to episode 2245 of the Survival Podcast. 2245, it's an expert counsel show. This is where you send me emails to ask questions of our expert counsel. Now, if you want to know who's on the expert counsel and the type of stuff they can answer for you, All you got to do is go to any of the expert counsel shows. You'll see a whole list of the expert counsel and the websites that they have. Or you can go to the survivalpodcast.com and under about you'll see a, a link that says meet the expert counsel. And you can click on that and you can get basically the bios of the expert counsel members and exactly what it is that they're you know able to answer for you. We're really blessed to have this group of people. There's like 14 or 15 expert council members that we have now. And, man, they have an incredibly diverse array of knowledge that they're willing to share with us. Here's the stuff that we're going to talk about today and who we're going to talk about it with. First of all, uh, we have questions on investing in the lithium market. It's, it's kind of a white-hot space if you think about it. The largest building that's ever existed is being built right now. It's not done yet. Uh, it's the uh, it's the battery factory, the gigafactory uh, that Tesla's building, and every one of those batteries has got rare earth, earth, rare earth elements going into it, and so that's a sector that we need to be looking at as investors. John Pugliano will talk about that. What about gilt, girded tree, gilded trees, girdled trees? Sorry, so you put your trees out, and a rabbit comes along, eats all the bark off of them. What do you do now that stuff's coming back from the roots? but not the tree that was grafted onto them. Nick Ferguson will talk about that. Dealing with a field that's overrun with pokeweed, or really any weed, even though this particular weed is pokeweed, with Ben Falk. How about the ins and outs of diagnostic code readers for cars and trucks with Charles, the humble mechanic, Sandville. When to consider investing in real property as, start, as part of your investment portfolio with Nicole Awesome Sauce. Uh, what is a lipoma, and what should you do about it, if anything, depending on where it is and how big it is with Doc Bones, and what no one is saying about the labor shortage, also known as full employment, which is kind of where we're at now. Uh, there's a lot of talk about it, good and bad. Uh, both sides politically want to make a point using it, uh, but what nobody seems to really be doing is saying, what will this lead to? We've actually been talking about this for a long time. And it would honestly seem like this thing shows that myself and Mr. Pugliano have been wrong. Uh, no, it shows that we're right. And I'll explain how that is and what that's all about when we get to it. Uh, before we get into your first call, I wanted to take one more time and remind you guys, tomorrow, 9 a.m., if you log into the MSB at 9 a.m., I honestly wouldn't wait till like 9, 10 a.m., Central Standard Time. There'll be a link. That link will take you to a form. You fill out that form, uh, and you reserve a ticket for the 10-year anniversary, the uh, Survival Podcast 10-year anniversary. There's going to be 100 tickets available. The people, the first 50 to get in can come for free. Uh, the second 50 can come for 25 bucks, which... It's going to be more than worth it, I'll tell you that. We just looked at it and decided like we didn't want to limit it to 50. We were going to cover all the food costs for everybody and uh, moving it to 100. That was a suggestion from a lot of people. Uh, specifically, I had a lot of people say, hey, you know, I want to come, but I want to bring my wife. Could I buy an extra ticket or something like that? And I thought, you know, I don't know, 25 bucks. If somebody wants to spend 25 bucks, then they don't really want to come. And 
That stuff was coming from a lot of people who are like traveling down here from places like Ohio and Virginia. I figure if you're going to want to travel that far to be here for this, 25 bucks is not much of a hurdle. And what it'll let us do is what we really wanted to do. And that was instead of just you know providing a party, providing some other stuff like the cool shot glasses and some other stuff we're going to be giving away. All right, so just a quick reminder on that. Now we're going to get right into it. I have a question for John Pugliano on investing in the lithium market. Hello, TSP listeners. Today we have an investment question from Derek, and he's asking about what I think the long-term price of lithium is going to do. Now, he was interested in lithium back a couple years ago when he first heard Stephen Harris talk about the need for lithium as a result of new battery chemistries and the use for these batteries in electric vehicles. And then, of course, we saw the price skyrocket back in 2017. Uh, that price has come down. It's moderated some. Derek is wondering if this would be a good time to get into lithium. And then he also mentions that he'd read a Morgan Stanley report that said that by the year 2021, the price of lithium would be dropping by 45% because there would be a global oversupply of lithium. So he wants to know what my opinion is. Well, Derek, I'll answer that question specifically about lithium. But before I do, let's just talk about commodities in general. They go through classic boom and bust cycles. It's always going feast or famine, boom or bust. That's the nature of commodities. And so specifically to lithium, do I think long term that it's a good investment? Well, I think it probably is, but it's not for the faint of heart. It should, like all commodities, compose just a very small portion of your overall investment portfolio. Since lithium and all commodities are very cyclical, it isn't necessarily something you want to invest in over long periods of time because if you're investing just in the raw material itself, it generally doesn't pay a dividend. And if you're owning it when the prices are collapsing, then that bus cycle that you have to hold it through could be five or ten years out before you see any profit, depending on how much oversupply there's been. I mean, even in the case of lithium, you're remembering back to maybe 2015 when the prices have really seemed like they've skyrocketed. But if you look back a little farther, you'll see that lithium really peaked with the overall super commodity cycle in around 2011. And so while it may seem that prices are up significantly since, say, 2016, had you been invested in lithium going back to 2011, you've probably lost maybe, I don't know, 50, 75% of your investment. But again, that's the nature of commodities. Now, as far as investing in lithium over the short term, I actually think that we might be in a window now where there is a buying opportunity. What I'm currently invested in is an ETF called LIT, L-I-T. And I like this exchange-traded fund for several reasons. One reason is the timeliness of its price action. The fund was up probably 60% in 2017, but it's pulled back significantly since then. It's down probably 20-25% from its highs in January of this year. So I think that pullback has scared a lot of people and shaken out weaker hands. And over the last three months or so, the prices are trying to stabilize and get into a staging area And with the price dropping 20-25% over these past six months, I think a lot of investors have given up, they've capitulated, and perhaps now is a time to buy into this ETF. Now, the other thing I like about LIT is that it's a diversified fund. It's diversified both geographically as well as the companies and the industries it invests in. So about 45% of its holdings are in the United States. There's 13% in Korea, 11% in Australia, 10% in Japan. 7% in Chile, 
and then the components that make it up as well are diversified. The fund invests in commodity chemical companies, automotive companies, companies that make electrical components or batteries, as well as the lithium mining companies themselves. So the fund invests in large mining companies like FMC and Albemarle. It's also invested in Panasonic's battery technology and even directly in Tesla. And so within the overall lithium industry and supply chain, LIT is pretty well diversified. And as I mentioned, I do own it. I think the window, the opportunity is there to get into the fund right now. But I do caution people. I'm just giving you my opinion. I'm not giving you specific investment advice. And if you should decide to purchase this ETF, make sure it's just a very small component of your overall portfolio. Because the lithium industry is extremely volatile, particularly right now. If you look at Tesla just in the last week or so, its price has dropped some 20%. So if you're going to invest in commodities, and specifically if you're going to invest in the lithium industry, be prepared for some boom and bust cycles and make sure the money that you're putting at risk is something that you can afford to lose should the bottom fall out of this market. Well, Derek, thanks for your question. If you'd like to hear more about my opinions about the stock market and general wealth-building principles, please check out the Wealth Setting Podcast. For the expert counsel, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. Good stuff there from John. I, I don't have a lot to add. I'll just, I'll just kind of endorse his tact that if, like, if you want to play in this market, then play more than just the raw commodity. Play the companies using the commodity combined with the commodity itself. Um, the price of lithium could go way down. And that could be really good for a company like Tesla. Tesla, by the way, I think currently is an overvalued stock because they haven't made a dime of profit yet. And, and some people point that out to why, well, they're, you know, they're just they're, they're they're doomed forever. Amazon didn't make any money for like its first eight years of operation, and today it's one of the darlings of the stock market, and its profit margin is about one point five percent. But 1.5% on a trillion dollars, which they're set to become a trillion dollar company, and they may be able to actually irk out about a 2.5% profit over the next couple of years. 2.5% of a trillion dollars is a shitload of money. So it's really important to think about how you're investing and not make it like, I'm going to go into lithium, or I'm going to go into gold, or what have you. It doesn't matter what it is. Being smart and diversifying, and remember... My view on diversity, and John's as well, is that when you look at your investment portfolio, it's not just like, oh, I'm diversifying because I have stocks and bonds. I have small cap and large cap. No, no, no. Your entire investment portfolio, including all the things that you hold that have, grow, and maintain value, that's part of your actual investment portfolio. That's everything from tools to real estate, you name it. And we'll have a little look at real estate in just a bit. Right now, though, we have a question. It's more of a permaculture homesteading question. Got a guy with some trees with a problem. Freaking rabbits, especially in the north. They really can be a problem in the winter. Nick Ferguson, let's talk about that. Hey there, TSP listeners. Nick Ferguson here with an answer for the expert council. And this question is from Dan in Minnesota. And his email reads, Rabbits have decimated many of my young fruit trees this winter by chewing the bark all around the base, killing the trees, but not the roots. Will these trees ever produce fruit if I let the sucker roots grow? Background, I live in Minnesota. And we had a longer than usual winter. And the rabbits ate all around the base of my young fruit trees, and they are basically dead, but the roots are shooting out suckers. But my local nursery guy says that I can grow these suckers, but they will never produce fruit. 
and so should be replaced by a new tree. I want a second opinion. Thank you in advance for answering my question. Well, the short answer is they will produce fruit. It's not going to be the fruit of the cultivar that you planted because they probably killed everything above the graft. So, yes, they will produce the same type of tree. So if it's an apple, it's going to be an apple tree. It's probably going to just be the apple rootstock. And it won't produce good fruit normally. It might be fruit that you would want to eat. I don't know. So what you can do is either replace those trees or let them grow, train a single stick up, and you can graft onto that one. Or you could train multiple shoots up and graft individual cultivars onto each one of those. Personally, if it were me, seeing as how you've had this problem in the past, I would train a single stick up and I would graft a new new cultivar, new scion wood onto that. And I would have fruit trees that are going to grow really well because they have a more established root system. And what you can do is uh, just get some tree protectors around those for next winter to protect them and keep that from happening again. So, man, I really hate that for you, but that is life with fruit trees. It just sometimes happens. So you can either replace them outright or you can let them grow and you can graft onto them and grow uh, better established fruit trees in the future. I hope that helps, man. I'm Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com. Do good things. I think it has a lot to do, too, with um, what kind of fruit it is, how the rootstock would produce for you. If it's a uh, semi-dwarf apple, it's probably going to be that great of an apple. Uh, you're probably like EML7 or something like that. It's, yeah, it's, it is what it is. It's not great. Um It's a full-size apple. It could very possibly be Antonovka apple see, uh, stock, and it's a good apple. Uh, if it's a, you know, if it was something that a, a small nurseryman made up, and instead of using a semi-dwarf or dwarf, they used a seed-grown uh, rootstock, then it's probably going to produce, most apple seed actually produces a pretty damn good fruit apple. It may not be the kind of thing that would do well in a store, but in essence, I really agree with Nick, you probably don't want to replace these. Or you want to graft onto them. And grafting onto them has some advantages. Uh, replacing them also has some advantages. If you grow them out and graft them this year, you're not going to get anywhere near the growth you would get if you went out and simply got some new one-and-a-half or two-and-a-half-year-old trees uh, and, and replanted them. If you have maybe not the ability to replant them all and only some, then maybe you pick the best ones to, uh, to go with the graft on. Uh, now... Big thing, like you said, tree protectors or something. If you don't do this, you're going to have this problem every year. This is a common problem in, in northern climates. Young trees, rabbits just do this. The easiest and cheapest thing that I've found to do is um, you go out and you, uh, you go to like uh, one of the big box stores, and they sell this, uh, it's like for French drains, and it can either have perforated holes or it can be solid. And it's black plastic, four inch. It comes in big rolls. Uh, that's the stuff I'm talking about. And, uh, you know, one roll of that could do, geez, dozens of trees. And you cut a piece of that stuff about 12 inches long, and you can cut it with a razor knife. 
Be careful when you do the second cut I'm about to tell you. It's a little easier to cut yourself. When you cut around it, you just kind of follow the groove that's in there because it's corrugated. It's got those grooves, and it's pretty easy to keep your control of your knife. When you make your long cut, it's a little bit easier to uh, to maybe cut yourself. A two-by-four, like, clamped or, or, or nailed to something to basically make, like, a workbench, you can slide it over and cut against. works really good for this. Cut a slit down it and just cut it all the way down so you can pull it open. And then just take that and put that around your tree. Uh, and pull a little bit of dirt back and pack a little dirt around the bottom and just do that in your winters. And, I mean, really, it doesn't hurt nothing to have that there all the time. Uh, and, and then by the time your trees get big enough to where, you know, they need some space from that thing, uh, you, you really ain't going to have this problem anymore. These, these bunnies like these young trees. That's the ones they do this to. Um, and the way that that stuff is, it's pretty giving, even if you, like, I don't know, forgot about it for 10 years or something. It's kind of just going to grow itself open. I don't recommend leaving it there once you get up to enough size to not need it anymore. But that's the cheapest thing I know, rather than buying something that's purpose-built for it and costs more money. Next, I have another uh, kind of uh, homesteading, uh, gardening, permaculture question. This one for Ben Falk on dealing with pokeweed. Hey, Jack and all. Ben Falk on Whole Systems Design. Uh, the question from Jason in Maryland. It's a great question. I'll start off by saying the specific plant pokeweed we don't really... Um, deal with here. I don't I don't have much experience with it uh, personally. But I have some important things for you to keep in mind. And I do encourage you to, to look into pokeweed specifically, but there's a lot of important principles here that are really um, usually missed when people are dealing with quote-unquote plant invasions. You know, basically a situation where there's abuse and abandonment. And this is to a T, perfect example of quote plant invasions. The land's been abused, And it's been abandoned and uh, multiple times. And that, as you sound like you know, um, destroys a place um, in a significant way. And plants respond by being part of the overall life response on, on the planet, which is to heal the situation and bring back um, a greater level of health. So whatever plant it is, whether it's pokeweed or black locust in certain situations or Whatever, uh, you know, um, enemy we have that we make, um, for ourselves with these quote unquote invasions, um, they're there for a reason and they are doing important work. Now, that being said, we might not want the entire property to be that plant, which you don't, and it's 13 acres and it sounds like it's just completely covered in this one plant. Um, You want to find out what it's doing to the site. Um, pokeweed will have certain ways that it impacts soil. A lot of um, very dispersive and quick-growing, aggressive plants are nitrogen-fixing and otherwise build soil very well. Chances are pokeweed does that. Um, if it's putting up that much biomass quickly, it's doing that anyways, um, especially if you chop and drop it and, and keep it in place to build organic matter, which is going to be good for whatever you choose to grow there next. Um, I would probably in this situation, um, I wouldn't use chemicals either because the cure can be worse than the disease in, the, in those situations for sure. Um, I would probably have heavy black tarps like EPDM scrap liner and you can buy pallets of them um, for cheap uh, in salvage online. They're worth it. You'll use them for so many things, especially in the veggie garden. You can lay them down and in a year or two, I can't imagine more than that, maybe three years if it's a crazy plant, 
um, you will kill that plant if it's under a heavy black um, polymer. This EPDM and the really heavy um, flat roofing materials that you can buy salvage by the pallet or get them sometimes scrap for free won't blow around on you very easily, um, especially if you weight them down a little, but they're very heavy, some of them, depending what you get. And they'll vaporize that plant, and then you can plant into it what you want in kind of a roving, like, free-range cell of fencing type of approach. Um, and you probably want to plant some plants that are pretty aggressive. Um, I would choose plants that meet your goals, um, but but then evaluate it for plants that are quick-growing, that get up quickly so they can shade out the pokeweed or otherwise exist, you know, next to a whole mess of pokeweed. Um, but definitely also check out sites. What do they become after pokeweed? We forget when we're in these battling plant invasions that no plant community is forever. No plant community is permanent. And we go to war on all these plants thinking we can, um, we can move the succession along or that, or that we should, um, when these plants are, are playing a key role and are also not permanent. They all, you know, no plant communities been permanent ever. So they're all part of a larger succession. So what succeeds it? Look into those plants. There might be, chances are, very useful plants in that category. Um, and try to see places where that's happened already. Uh, chances are they'll be in your area. And um, try to also look at what kind of ecosystems you have um, before a pokeweed invasion. You might have to talk people to people to find that. And, you know, the word invasion is worth mentioning. You know, it's so easy to use in there. I used it, but it's really, um, it, it, it's indicative of, um, a problematic and an unfortunate and unproductive way of looking at plants. And it's so ensconced in our language and way of thinking that even those of us like myself who realize we, we have to work a better way, um, with land than to think in terms in the, in the plant invasion terms and invasion biology terms, but it's very ensconced within, our frame of view, and um, I just encourage you to really um, look at this situation in a very large context and in a truly ecological way, and check out some of the works about plant invasions, quote-unquote, uh, that are out there, like David Theodore Poulos's book, and especially Dower Ryan's book, Beyond the War on Invasive Plants, I think is the name of that. Good luck to you, and uh, it sounds like an exciting challenge, and be thankful there's plants that really want to thrive there, and it's not a wasteland with nothing growing, because you have tons of opportunity in the fact that that's the case. Thanks a lot. And next up, we have a question for Charles, the humble mechanic Sandville, on uh, code readers, things that you can plug into your car to help with diagnostics and things like that. Charles, take it away. What's going on, TSP? It's Charles from HumbleMechanic.com taking your car-related questions. This one comes in from JR. JR wants to know, what are the ins and outs of vehicle code readers? The details, looking for a code reader to add to my diagnostic toolkit. Current vehicles are a 2013 Sierra 1500 and a 2011 Lincoln MKZ, and I'll most likely stay with the domestic world. What's a good brand to trust in the market and can be as future-proof as possible? Are there any that read out information on screen that might hook up to Wi-Fi in your home network? Basically looking to diagnose small issues at home that don't involve cherry pickers and lifts, 
Thanks, JR. All right. So good question, JR. Now, the world of scan tools, you can really walk to both extremes. You can buy a $5 to $10 OBD plug that pairs to your phone on Amazon and pull codes. And you can spend as much money really as you want to to buy a scan tool. The big boy one that I have that works on all makes and models, I think is about two grand. When you get into the factory scan tool world, it's usually five up to $30,000. And let's face it, none of us are probably going to head down that path. Before we decide on what scan tool we want to buy, we need to look at two things. What are we going to do with it? Like actually do with it? And what's our budget? Again, you could spend as much money as you really want to here. Since the budget is up to you, let's talk about what we're going to do with it. You mentioned light diagnosis, so pulling codes and probably looking at the data around those codes. That'll probably lead us to a Google search for the issue and hope that it's maybe a common problem and we can find a solution or taking a stab at replacing the part that the fault is related to. Maybe simply clearing the fault out and seeing if it comes back, which can be a pretty reasonable thing actually, or deciding whether or not maybe this is outside your skill set and taking it into the shop. The thing I want to caution a little bit though on pulling fault codes is you have to understand what that fault code actually is. The code is simply an identifier of a system that hasn't passed its test. Every system on your car runs multiple tests multiple times throughout drive cycles, and when one doesn't pass, it triggers a fault, and usually when it fails twice, it's going to turn on your check engine light. So when you pull this fault for, say, a failing catalytic converter, it might be the catalytic converter that's bad. It might be something else. So if you're going to be doing this and pulling faults, don't just assume that whatever the fault is for is also the bad component. It could be, but it could also be something else like maybe a wiring issue or something upstream going on causing that issue downstream. Thankfully, though, most cars have like a group of common problems. And if your check engine light comes on, it's more than likely going to be one of those things that's very easily Google searched and found Again, just be really careful with shotgunning parts at it, chasing that fault code. As far as who to trust, it's important to understand that the information that you're getting in that scan tool when you plug it into your car doesn't have a whole lot to do with the scan tool. It's more about the car. That information is coming from the vehicle's computer, so it should be the same really no matter what, especially when we're talking about engine performance type stuff. Now, if you compare that $5 code reader to that $6,000 factory scan tool, you might get a little bit different information, but that fault code and its structure has got to be the same no matter what scan tool you use. So as long as the unit itself works good, the information is going to be reliable. Now, I primarily work on VWs and Audis, so the scan tools that I have and I use all the time are focused on those two brands. But I have two other ones that I use that are universal scan tools, meaning that I can pull that generic onboard diagnostic information out of the engine computer and do a bunch, really, of other things as well. And these kind of run on that spectrum of price point that I mentioned earlier. One of them is about 2200 bucks, and it's awesome. And it does everything you could possibly want it to do, it does a lot of stuff that the factory scan tool would do. It does tire pressure monitors, and it's great, and it's easy to use, and it works on all cars. And again, 
it's two grand. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that's probably not really the price point you were looking to spend to do this light diagnosis at home. The other one that I use and I really like is called the Blue Driver OBD2 Scan Tool. It's a hundred bucks on Amazon. It has over 3,000 reviews with a four and a half star rating. So it's, it's been around for a while. I think I've had mine for like three or four years and it does a really good job talking to cars. Now you're not going to be able to do all that really cool stuff that I would just mention that other one can do, but I think you're going to be able to do all the things that you really want. The other thing I really focus on with scan tools is I want to talk to more than just the engine. The ECM, engine control module, or PCM, a lot of manufacturers call it, which is a powertrain control module, is a vital one, right? That's the one that makes that little blinky light come on in our dash. But what about all the other modules in the car? What about the airbag module? What about the ABS module? Maybe climatronic, maybe convenience module or body control module. I kind of want to talk to all that stuff too. And the Blue Driver can do that on a lot of brands. I'm looking and seeing GM and Ford as well. So you should be covered there. The interface is nice. It's easy to use. You can pull up all the information surrounding the fault code, all those stored parameters for the code. They refer to them as PIDs. You can also look at information to maybe start diagnosing non-fault driven issues, maybe looking at the throttle pedal or the O2 sensor or the fuel correction. And again, it pairs with my phone. I really like the interface. It's cool for me because I can now do screen record and record that for video. Again, something you guys probably don't care about, but it's just one extra thing. I like that it plugs to my phone because I always have my phone with me. I can leave the little wireless thing in my car. Don't leave it installed in your OBD2 port but you can leave it in your car and you don't have to chase down, you know, a, an iPad size scan tool. So that's the one that I like and that I use. I think it's worth every bit of that hundred bucks. Again, it's called the Blue Driver Bluetooth OBD2 scan tool. One final thing on the future proofing. A lot of this stuff is updatable, but you're only going to get so much performance out of this. Our factory scan tool at the dealership usually had monthly updates most professional level scan tools update at least once a year. So I wouldn't expect this to be forever future proofed, but I think for most DIY folks, this one is gonna deliver something that isn't gonna break the bank and has the information that meets the skill level of the person using it. As I'm rounding home on the question, I'm remembering that I actually did a review of this exact scan tool many, many years ago. So I'll send that link over to Jack if you want to check that out. The interface may be a little different now because that was kind of an older review, but you could check it out if you want to get a feel for how this tool works. JR, thanks for sending that in. Guys, keep the questions coming. If you want to check out more of my videos, head over to humblemechanic.com. You can see them all there. Guys, have an awesome weekend, and I will talk to you again next time. And I do have a link to the particular model that Charles mentioned in the show notes. Next up, we have a question for Nicole Sauce on real estate investing. Nicole, take it away. Howdy, TSP and Jack. Nicole Sauce here with a question for Mike over on the TSP Zello channel. Mike asks, when does it become appropriate to invest in real estate? Background, Nicole, you've got investments in real estate, and I've been hearing you talk about a recent remodel of one of your apartments. When did you decide to become a real estate tycoon in addition to everything else you're up to? All kidding aside, is it appropriate for homesteaders to consider additional real estate as an investment? Anticipating an it-depends answer, when is it definitely a no-go or definitely a slam dunk? 
Are there multiple income streams that real estate makes possible? Wow, Mike. Okay, well, it depends. As you know, uh, everything depends. And I'm, I just couldn't resist saying that because it does. That's a hard question to ask. You're asking me, is it good for you to buy real estate, as near as I can tell, as an investment? Um, tycoon is not the right word for me, uh, but I have always been interested in real estate. And on the other hand, if you think about it, you're already a real estate tycoon yourself. You have land. You are either gleaning income from it or replacing the need to earn income from it, right? If you're not, you're doing it wrong. So um, I suppose some backstory about what I'm doing in real estate is in order here. I don't think we've ever talked about that on Jack's show, but it is one of my side hustles. I have managed a rental of one kind or another since I bought my first home in 2000. And back then, I moved into this really cute potential, cute potential is a good way to say that, home. It was built in 1900 in North Portland. It was awesome. Like, you know, the old trim, but it needed to be scraped, you know, stuff, stuff, stuff like that. And I love like that old look. And I was single at the time and I was often on the road for work when I wasn't in town. Ha ha. Uh, and so I ended up de- deciding to rent out the extra bedroom to a roommate. And that in turn covered my mortgage payment with rent which meant I was living for zero rent. I did have to pay the utilities myself, but that turned out to be pretty good for me. And, you know, now that I think about it, it goes back a little further than that. My first job, my first job when I was 10 years old, I earned $5 an hour cleaning and painting rentals that my dad owned. Yep, that was my 10-year-old job. Slave labor from children. And at that age, like $5 an hour was a ton of money. But that first home, you know, back to the home in Portland, it ended up needing some major overhauling that I didn't see going in. And I didn't really have a lot of extra income. So I did almost all the work myself with some help from friends. And I learned a lot of construction lessons the hard way, like the really hard way. For example, the third time we hung the ceiling in my kitchen, the drywall ceiling in my kitchen, I learned that you can rent a drywall lift rather than holding up drywall with your head while you screw it in, which makes your neck sore, by the way. It's also probably really dangerous to be on a ladder with drywall on your head. But at the time, I didn't realize there was a tool for that. And I've learned over the years to start asking, is there a tool for this? Because there usually is. And by the time we were hanging that ceiling for the third time, my friends were way less eager to help me. Like I have one friend who was involved in every one of those three hangings. And the reason we had to put it up and pull it down and put it up and pull it down is that I, when I had it down to begin with, didn't take care of everything that was under there that I could possibly take care of. It's one of those things like if the wall is open, fix everything that might go wrong. So like, you know, I hung it up and then we developed a plumbing leak and we had to take it back down and deal with a plan. You got to make sure like all of that's dealt with. So I learned a lot of those lessons the hard way. And I have not met like a, a piece of trim that I have not had to cut three times to make it look right. But that's just me. Other people are much better at that than I am. And, you know, insulation is a good thing. You might as well add it everywhere. Every time you open anything as near as I can tell. So while I'm not by any means a tycoon, I am also not frightened of getting my hands dirty. And I don't mind looking at the core problem to fix it in the long run, as long as I have the budget for materials. And I usually have a pretty good idea 
of what something is going to cost. And if you've heard me talking about the drain problem I have in my current home, the reason I'm not getting into the core problem there is I don't have the money put aside yet to buy all the materials I know I'm going to have to buy. So that's something I'm kicking the can down the road with a patch, which you sometimes have to do. In answer to your question about when I decided to add rental properties to my wealth building strategy, it was during that time in in North Portland. For six-ish years in that home, I was able to live first mortgage-free, then mortgage and utility-free simply by adding a roommate or two. And I was single, so it didn't matter. Along the way, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad very carefully. I helped a friend manage his rentals to learn more about the trade. I learned about careful screening and good contracts. I learned some of those lessons the hard way. I discovered um, a now defunct mortgage interest write-off. It's gone on rentals. And then I moved to Tennessee and I landed in like this state full of things for sale for not very much money compared to the Oregon market and, and a rental market that was becoming increasingly tight. And when I moved here, I just started studying this market very carefully. Unfortunately, I could only afford one property, which brings us to your next question. Is it appropriate for homesteaders to consider additional real estate as an investment? Totally appropriate to consider. I mean, it's appropriate to consider anything, right? But this really does, like, the decision depends on you, your budget, what you like to do with your time, how the numbers work out, and so forth. You cannot be emotional about this decision at all. You just can't. It's a business decision. Jack has done several segments and at least one episode on how he approaches real estate. And one of the key things that I always appreciate about his advice on this is you can't let your emotions get in the way. And you need to buy low and sell high, right? It's it's a very simple game. That Those are the rules right there. And Jack has also said that being a landlord is not for him. And you know what? I bet he has avoided years of heartache being upside down in a property, fixing a friggin' toilet because he couldn't afford to hire a plumber because he's made that decision for him. So I think this is a decision that has two parts, and one is the business part, and the other one is, is it for you? Because you don't want to jump into this if you hate real estate or hate working on places. So when is it definitely a no-go or a slam dunk? I don't think it's ever a slam dunk if you hate real estate. It's never a slam dunk. If you hate working on things, if you're unwilling to learn the basics of home building and finance, even if the numbers are good, If you're going to be totally hands-off, real estate is probably not for you. That's just my opinion. I mean, I know people who have a different view on this. It's also a no-go if you hate fixing things, unless you're going in with the kind of capital that most homesteaders don't have. It's also a no-go if you don't like to be an asshole or can't be an asshole. If you're going to go into real estate, you need to learn to be an asshole. So when is it a slam dunk, you ask? Um I'm not sure anything's a slam dunk, really. But, you know, it's kind of like stocks. Like, when is that a slam dunk? If you find something that's at a good price in an area that can support a flip or has a good rental market that you can make a profit on, you might be on to something. I'm not sure it's a slam dunk, but you might be on to something. And I've made some decent money at real estate in the following ways. One, appreciation. My Portland home, that one I started with, tripled in value because I got really lucky. Total luck on that one, guys. And the neighborhood I, it was in gentrified. 
it was was it worth the many hours of updating and hanging that ceiling three times and the sleepless nights when there were shootings outside my door, um, the safety patrols sitting as neighborhood association chair, the street fair organizing and street art projects? Was it worth all that? Heck, I even got accused of being a racist by white violent anarchists, and I say that in air quotes because I don't think they were anarchists. I think they were communists. Um, speaking on behalf of other people of color, even though they didn't have a single person of color in their group. But I was the racist because I thought it was um, a good idea that kids could play outside without witnessing sex acts or game violence. I thought that was something that was appropriate for kids. And apparently that was racist. But anyway, for me, yeah, it was worth it. I learned a lot about people, communities, organizing, and home repair during that time, and that set me up for success here on my homestead because I, you know, I get into things and I get over my head here all the time, but, you know, I look back to then and I'm like, well, at least I learned how to wire stuff or whatever it is. And I made some really good friends. Um, another thing that you can look at is building equity. A lot of people talk about building equity. And I would say my appreciation on the house is it's crossover, right? I built equity because I was super lucky and the house ended up worth a lot more. And I didn't really pay my own mortgage that whole time. But I think going into something like that, um, counting on equity building is like buying Bitcoin and counting on it going up in a week, right? You can't do it. You have to look really carefully at that. I know people who lose money or break even monthly on their rentals so they can quote unquote build equity in a property. That's not something I'd ever do because you could just as well end up upside down in that property because of a big rental, a big like housing market crash. And like any other investment, real estate is somewhere where you really can lose your ass very, very quickly. When I look at a property, I'm never looking to build equity. I am not looking to lose money. I want to make a profit on rent immediately, but that's just me. Or I want to flip it and make a profit, but I'm looking for how am I going to make a profit? Not how am I going to lose money for 10 years while this thing increases in value, right? Okay. So then we'll move on to another way that you can build a revenue stream off of real estate and that's rentals. Be careful with this one. I love doing rentals almost as much as I love roasting coffee. Not everyone does. It's, it's kind of like being a boss. You have to constantly deal with people who act like entitled children. But as my partner in, Na- in the Nashville duplex likes to say, 90% of the landlord's problems are created by who? By the landlord. The moment you decide you like a tenant and start giving them passes on things like, oh, I don't know, paying rent on time, that's where your problems start. Or you give someone with a bad rental history a chance that's where problems start. And that list can go on and on. And this is where the, your inner asshole really has to come out. Like any business, things can pencil out really well. But if you start making special exceptions, this opens yourself up for problems. I think you asked this question because you've heard me talking about this very Nashville property. And you heard me talk about how a tenant moved out. And they told us they had removed their stuff and their garbage and vacuumed and wiped everything down. Like they told us that on the phone. I arrived three days later to a fridge full of rotting food and a very dirty apartment full of garbage. And I had brought no garbage bags. Whose fault is that? 
like this gross factor, and it was a gross factor of about eight. This one was my fault. I should have gone there that very day they moved out and said that and double checked. And I, you should never go. I'm like, in what universe did I think I could show up without gloves, a mask, and garbage bags? Not in the rental universe. I know better, and I still trusted that tenant, right? At the same time, what we're doing there is putting about 5K in to make the apartment nicer and then doubling the rent to market rates in that area. So for the next four to six weeks, I'm going to go into Nashville about every other day, work on the place, get it ready, and then I get this long tail payoff in the form of rent every month, which gives me a check every month. So what could possibly go wrong? I'll tell you what could go wrong. Rent controls, real estate crash, like what happened in 2007, eminent domain, I'm pretty sure we're safe from that right now, but you never know. Any number of things can go wrong. We've just really looked at that market and feel like this is the time to do it. So you really have to know your market to do well with rentals. Then again, having the monthly rental income can truly help you replace income you need from a JLB. That's what it's done for me. We're part of our strategy here in in transitioning, you know, onto the homestead is to have multiple streams of income that, that recur. And that's one of mine just happens to be rental income, real estate. So like anything, you need to go into this eyes wide open, do your research. I think you should find a way to test the waters. Then pull the trigger or don't. Okay, now another way you can make money is flipping. This requires a good understanding of your real estate market, what it will take to update a place, and the means to get the work done efficiently. And right now in Tennessee... Finding contractors is very hard, very, very hard, but it's also a really good time to make some money. So again, this is where if you have relationships in place, you're ahead of everybody else and you might want to look at flipping or if you can do the work yourself, same thing. If you can buy something and update it while living in it, as I've done over the years, that's another, you know, it's kind of like flipping, but not the same, but It's nice if you do the living in it thing to have a plan in place that you get it done and then actually get to enjoy some of the updates before you move out. I had a couple places where I got it done and sold it. (laughs) And I was like, it would have been really nice to live in a place that did not have open walls for the last five years, right? So just keep that in mind. You know, flipping houses is something that requires a really good understanding of the real estate market. And you do open yourself up to a risk of a sudden correction in the market like we had in 2007. And, you know, bluntly, I have never flipped a house quickly. So anybody who's listening to this who does the the quick flip, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you should consider before flipping a house. Um, maybe in the comments of the show, I, I think it would be interesting to go down that path. I've always done more of the buy it, live in it, fix it up, and sell it for more money. Okay, so then lastly, another way to make money on real estate is Airbnb. Or anything like that, right? So this isn't really different than doing a rental. The only difference is you're going through a third party on that, and you add an element of being a host or hostess to the mix. We run several things through Airbnb or Hip Camp on our property, and that's because we can stand people for up to a week almost, I mean, no matter how annoying they are. Not quite, but almost. And... Every long-term renter we have had here on our property has ended up being a problem, either through their cleaning habits, their animals, or their lying. Like, we had a guy here who lied about smoking, 
and he smoked inside, which is totally verboten at our property. And we had to redo the whole inside because it just reeked of cigarettes. It was I had to get rid of all the furniture. It was awful. And that's because he was there for six months, right? If he'd been there for a week and done some smoking inside, I probably could have washed the walls and gotten away with it. Nope. It was soaked in. It was bad. And I had been riding his butt about smoking the whole time and should have kicked, kicked him out sooner. And that's, that brings us back to the asshole thing, right? I needed to be an asshole sooner. I've learned a lot of my asshole lessons that way. That cost me money. So I love getting extra in- income from Airbnb and, in fact, have a delightful couple in it right now who I'm hoping will come up later and hang out by the fire around the aquaponics system and tell us stories. So Airbnb can be really fun, especially if you like that social interaction. Anyway, this is by no means the end of an answer to your question. There is only so much you can cover in 10 minutes. And I have to say, I do pay someone to do my taxes so that all the real estate stuff and depreciation and all that is done right, which is another expense you need to figure into your formula. But I hope this gives you a place to start thinking about it and you know, deciding if you're the real estate type and if real estate is an income stream for you. For me, it is. But note, I live in a very small, simple home that needs lots of updating right now. And my rentals are mostly nicer than where I live. If I had all of the capital that are in my rentals in this house, I'd have a really nice house. And that's a trade-off that I've made in exchange for the monthly rental income for those places that makes this place, well, it's about to make this place more than free, right? And that means then a little more freedom for me. Um, again, you know, I guess I should say I'm not a financial advisor. I'm just sharing my perspective on real estate. So take it with a grain of salt. So I hope that covers things for you, Mike and Jack. It's really great to have you back at the microphone. We missed you while you were gone, but really glad you got some time away. As always, thanks for helping us all to live a better life. And TS peers, any of you thinking about real estate? I cannot stress enough that you need to go read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Read it twice. Read it when you are able to concentrate on the lessons there. And then evaluate if real real estate is really for you or not, or if you should be spending your efforts somewhere else. If you want to know more about me, head on over to livingfreeintennessee.com. And if you need some of the best beans for summer, cold brew, guess what? We've got them. We've got them at hollerroast.com, H-O-L-L-E-R-R-O-A-S-T.com. I had a chef tell me today that mine is the only coffee he's ever had that he likes to drink black. That was interesting feedback. Anyway, if you do that, don't forget to log in and grab your MSB discount code before you come over there. Okay, friends, make it a great week. So, um, yeah, Nicole mentions that I am not a fan of being a landlord, and I'm not. That doesn't mean I'm not a fan of investing in real estate. Uh, it means I'm not a fan of being a landlord. Uh, landlord rental is really not something I ever want to do again, because it, not because it requires a lot of work. I think this is what you need to understand. Other than investing in something like a security where uh, you basically look at something and say, hey, I believe this stock's going to go up in value or something like that. There's a lot of work that should be done to make that decision. But in the end, once you buy that security, let's say you buy a dividend-producing stock, and as long as that company makes money, you get a di- dividend distribution and you get whatever increase in equity, and you don't have to do anything. Uh, it's probably a good idea to keep an eye on it in the market sector as a whole, but you don't have to worry about something breaking. You don't have to go and collect from somebody that didn't pay a bill. Uh, you don't have to worry about uh, any type of significant insurances, though there are certain things you can do when you're investing to create some insurance for yourself that generally rich people do and poor people don't. 
but you get the point. Like being a real estate investor requires work. Being any type of investor requires work. I've had people say, "I want you to invest in my company," and sometimes I'll at least look at the company. And, and this is what I'm really looking to. Well, if you can show me purchase orders you have. And you just need capital to fulfill that purchase order. Then we can work out some sort of short-term loan arrangement somewhere. Like right now, we'd be talking a number of a 10% return. And, and then I can loan you that money with contingencies and uh, uh, things along the lines of I know when I'm going to get paid and we're going to sign a contract that says that and things like that. I don't want to buy into your business because it's not my business and I don't want to be a passive partner in a business. And I don't want to invest in a business I'm not really great at. So that requires work. And, and I think the, the problem is so many businesses out there and so many sectors out there where somebody can make a lot of money have become known for that. And people make a lot of money selling how to become rich in real estate or whatever. And a lot of times there's people that never made any money in it. Or the money they did make in it, they didn't make the way that they talk about making money with it. She mentioned uh, Robert Kiyosaki and Rich Dad Poor Dad, etc. Robert Kiyosaki did not make money in real estate by going to his uncle and, and borrowing money. He didn't make money in real estate by buying property with no money down. He made money in real estate because his family actually had some money to get started with. Uh, but, you know, it's a lot easier to sell making money in real estate with no money down than it is to sell, you know, if you work really hard first and have some money, I can show you how to make some more money in real estate. And then there's a lot of things to go with that. And so Nicole mentioned numbers, but I want to talk about what I mean when I say numbers have to be right. I am actually considering, and I have been for six months now, And I haven't actually done it yet, which tells you how long my due diligence lasts when I'm evaluating something, going into a new real estate investment. And this investment is not a bug-out location in the middle of nowhere. No, it would actually be a property on, on, the, on the coast of Texas, on the Gulf Coast. And I've considered this because I have started looking at renting properties down there, short-term rentals, one-week type things, Airbnb. And as I did that, I started looking at what's available, how much it costs. And then when you do that, you say, well, like, if I wanted to book that in July, and it's like May, could I? So you go to book this property, even though you're not going to, you just kind of want to see what it would cost, because it says, you know, from 186 or from 286 or whatever. Well, it's seasonable. So, you, well, how much is it going to cost me in, in July versus September? And you get to July, and there's like three days available. You go to August, there's like four days available. You go to September, there's like half the month available. You go into October, and there's like all but three days available. Well, when you do that, you start looking at what the property's renting for. You do some basic math. You understand the property tax situation, the elevated cost of insurance is down there, and you go, well, this person is doing well. Because the only reason that property's not available for rental is they're using it themselves and they're only going to do it so much when they have this type of a property or somebody's renting it. And if somebody's renting it, they have cash flow. And then it's not hard to work out that cash flow. You figure out, well, this is how much Airbnb takes. And one of my big concerns was cleaning. So I looked at every single one of them. In addition to that charge, has a cleaning fee somewhere in the neighborhood of $150 to $200 for a cleaning fee. Oh. So I started checking into it. Apparently, where there's lots of Airbnb homes like the Gulf Coast of Texas, there's companies that have now the market will provide. They exist for one purpose, to clean Airbnb properties. That's all they do. Really? 
And then you find out what they charge, and gee, that number looks awful familiar. So I start building an Excel spreadsheet model. I do not have enough information yet. I'm going to have to take the horrible, horrible burden on of going down and renting a couple of properties, seeing what they're like, seeing how they're maintained, talking to people that live there, seeing what they think of the fact that people like me are renting stuff like that and showing up. How many of them are also renters? How many are full-time residents? How bad does it get in the low season? What are you really paying for your insurance? And go fishing while I'm at it. But my best estimate right now is under the worst circumstances that I can buy a house somewhere in the three to $400,000 range and pay for it as though I'm buying it for $100,000. That is a 75% return. That is not buying a house and having somebody else pay all the equity for you. And it's not without risk. And it's not without cost. But it is without being a landlord because people come and people go. And over time, you build a book of business with people that don't abuse your house. And somebody else has to clean it up. And if somebody's not doing a good job since the market's good enough that there's multiple companies doing this, you have more than one person you can depend on to hire to outtask that too. Does that mean I am going to do this? No. Does that mean you should do this? No. What I will do, and this is what Nicole was talking about when she talked about not being emotional. There's a big part of me that likes this idea. I'll have my own friggin' beach house. I can go down there whenever I want. And I can go fishing. And I can go crabbing. And it'll be cool. And I'll be building my future value. I'll be building my retirement. When I get old, I can either sell the damn place, make a bunch of money when I do, or... When I get really old, if I decide that I don't want to run three acres anymore, maybe we move down there. There's a lot of good with owning a coastal property. <sighs> I could plant citrus down there for God's sakes. Okay? All of that shit is fine to create the interest. I will build a financial model. Once that financial model is built, I'll put it away. I'll wait a week. I will come back and I will look at that financial model that I built as though my friend brought it to me and said, will you audit this for me? And I will audit it. I will go through everything that I did with fresh eyes as though, okay, well, wh why did you say that the rental frequency for this property would be about 60%? Why did you say that? Well, I know why I said that. No, I want to go find it again. And I know it sounds like, man, that sounds laborious. It is. But what am I doing? Protecting my underlying investment. That's, that is my, my first thing when I'm going to invest in anything. I want to protect my underlying investment. I am not putting money on a craps table. I am not putting money on a roulette table. I have no protection of my underlying investment that way. So I'm going to protect my underlying investment by ensuring that under my worst estimations, that I would buy this house the way the numbers worked out if I was just buying it for myself. Because right now, if I could go down to the Texas coast and find a three- to four-bedroom house in a 1,600-square-foot range on the water for $100,000, I'd have one, even if I didn't rent it out. That's For me, in that particular investment, that's protecting my underlying investment. And here's the secret. It doesn't matter if it's real estate. It doesn't matter if it's a business. It doesn't matter if it's a loan. 
It doesn't matter if it's a security. This is how the wealthy invest or employ people to invest on their behalf. Protect my underlying principle. Earn me a fair rate of return. I want an exit strategy. All of those things have to line up, and then the financial model has to work, and it has to work when you put it together and you're making your assumptions and what have you. And at some point, you do have to make certain assumptions and certain guesses. But then when you put it away and come back, when you're not excited about it and you go over it, like somebody brought it to you and said, I'm about to put my money in here. Tell me what I'm not seeing. You have to audit your own shit that way. And then and only then do you make a decision to proceed. Doesn't matter what it is. Next up, I have a question here on a thing called a lapoma for old Doc Bones. Doc Bones, take it away, bro. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm also the co-author of the 2017 Book Excellence Award winner in medicine, The Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. Today's question for the expert counsel is from Kay, who asks, Would you surgically remove a fatty lipoma cyst? I noticed a lump on the back part of my arm back in February. It's a bigger cyst, maybe about the size of a large grape, and deep, but no pain is associated with it. Anyway, I washed it for a few months to see if it would go away or change. It's not gone away, but I do think it's gotten smaller since it's less noticeable when I raise my arm over my head and look in the mirror, which is how I first noted it. I had an ultrasound on it a couple of weeks ago. They say it's just a fatty lipoma cyst. I can either leave it or have it surgically removed. So, back to the original question, would you surgically remove a cyst that isn't bothering you? My first thought is not to have surgery, because I really don't want to mess with the hassle, the pain, the meds, the antibiotics, additional appointments, etc. However, I also worry that it's not just a lipoma cyst, and it could be something cancerous. Can cancerous cysts be ruled out via ultrasound? Some background info. I'm knocking on the door of 50, happy birthday in advance, okay, and about 40 pounds overweight, have a fairly unremarkable medical history, no meds, diseases, and the only thing I can think of to mention is that I've had small benign cysts removed during my pregnancy and a few benign cysts removed from my scalp. Maybe my body grows cysts instead of moles like everyone else in my family. Well, anyway, appreciate your advice and thanks for all you do. Okay, a lipoma is a benign tumor composed of body fat adipose tissue, and it's the most common benign form of soft tissue tumor. Lipomas are soft to the touch, usually movable, and are generally are painless. One in about a thousand people will get them, not that uncommon really at all from a medical standpoint. The fact that you've had it since at least February and that it hasn't been growing, may even be becoming smaller, suggests that it isn't something that will cause more than cosmetic issues, unless it impinges on a joint, let's say. Lipomas that start off benign don't become cancer, although a cancerous tumor known as a liposarcoma can mimic it for a time until it's obvious that it's growing quickly. Tests like ultrasound may or may not show the irregularity of the margins of the tumor, like CAT scans and MRIs. They may be more useful with regards to identification. Indeed, case some people seem to develop these cysts more than other people, although it isn't clear why. I remember removing several on my uncle over the years. For you, honestly, I can't see your lipoma, but generally speaking, I would leave it alone unless it bothers you. Always have your doctor check it out every time that you have an exam. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. 
Hey, besides getting a copy of our award-winning third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, don't forget to check out our entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Oh, don't forget, the Member Support Brigade gets a discount on everything on our store. So for my piece today, I wanted to go into a topic that we're hearing a lot about. Um, this is on CNBC. It says, the U.S. labor shortage is reaching a critical point. Now, let me read a little of the article to you. America's labor shortage is approaching epidemic proportions, and it could be employers who end up paying. A report on Thursday from ADP and Moody's Analytics casts an even brighter light on what is becoming one of the most important economic stories of 2018. The difficulty employees are having in finding employers are finding having in finding qualified employees to fill a record. 6.7 million jobs. Truck drivers are in perilously low supply. Silicon Valley continues to struggle to fill vacancies, and employers across the grid are coping with skills mismatch, mismatch as the economy edges closer to full employment. Business's number one problem is finding qualified workers at the current uh, pace of job growth. If sustained, this problem is said to get much worse, said Mark Zandi, chief economist of Moody's. Uh, in a statement, these labor shortages will only intensify across all industries and company sizes. Private payrolls grew 177,000 in June, a respectable number, but below market expectations. It was the fourth month in a row that ADP Moody count fell short of 200,000 after four months of at or above that level. The reason for the trick down is hiring certainly, and hiring certainly isn't because there aren't enough jobs. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that April closed with 6.7 million openings. May ended with just over 6 million people in the BLS classified as unemployed. Continuing a trend this year that has seen openings eclipse the labor pool for the first time, at some point that gap will have to close. Economists expect that employers are going to have to start doing more to entice workers, like through pay raises, training, and other incentives. Now, depending on who is talking about this, it's either good and wonderful or, well, yeah, it's good, but we can't say that because Trump, right? I mean, really, the left will say, well, it doesn't really matter if there's full employment if people have to have two jobs to make a living or if minimum wage is only, you know, uh, just low price and it should be $15 an hour and everything. Well, you know, in the end, right now, there's no way to point this other than, this is good. Doesn't mean it's going to stay good, but this is good. If this was Obama's economy, which is now the other thing the left is trying to say, this is Obama's economy. Yeah, this is this nothing to do with the freaking mountain of regulations that, let's be fair to Trump, that he, whatever he could remove on his own, he did. Nothing to do with that, right? Now, of course it does. It has a lot to do with it. It has nothing to do with over $300 billion dollars. $300 billion so far since the tax bill being repatriated. All that money that Jack and John Pugliano said was going to come back to the United States, it's coming back. It can, it's, it's going to end up being trillions of dollars before it's over with. So if, 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 there were, if Hillary Clinton was president right now, the TV would literally be playing holy music when they showed her picture. Okay. So even the people that are finding reasons to complain about this are saying, this is why we need more illegal immigrants. Like, yeah, the, the, the high-tech workers are the ones jumping the, 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 the border and what have you. Okay, listen, uh, even those people overall say, well, this is this, this really, we, we got to spin it, but this is good. 
this is good, but it's going to lead somewhere that I think most people have not connected the dots to yet. Just as I'm talking, some of you that have been listening for a while, and my initial comments about this during the intro, know where I'm going now. And you're going, yeah, I get it. Some of you may not get it even after I explain it. I don't know. It's really easy to see, though, if you'll open your mind and put all... And the reason I even talked about this politics, so we can get it out of the way. Put all that shit on the shelf. No matter what side you're on, it'll be there later. Put it on the shelf. Let's look at this from a technical analysis standpoint. One of the things that John Poo, Leonardo, and I have been talking about is automation, putting people out of work. And all of these different places and all of these different skill sets where bots and software and robots and everything else is going to take away jobs. And you might look at this now and say, holy crap, were John and Jack wrong. Look at this. We're at essentially full employment. There's more jobs than people instead of more, pe most, more people than jobs. And most people alive today, I'm not going to say no one alive today, most people alive today have never seen that in their lifetimes. You don't remember a time when that was true. If you grew up in the 70s and the 80s, you remember a totally different dynamic than that. When people talk about the Great Recession of 2008, If you were paying attention, you were old enough to pay attention to the 1970s, you're like, oh, that was a decade. It was a terrible, awful decade for the country as a whole. It was horrible economically here. It made Japan look like they're doing really good right now for the average person. That's how, I mean, it was stagflation. It was terrible. And, and so you, you understand that it can be a lot worse and it can be a lot better in, in a lot of different ways, depending on what area you're in and what have you. But if you look at this fact, and then you look at the advancement of technology moving toward automation, and if you think of an employer, let's say an employer that employs 20,000 people running into a labor shortage, and they've already been investigating and budgeting and planning for automation to eliminate jobs. And at this point, they've held back because, gee, some people in the company actually do have a conscience. I mean, there is, I sold a product, or actually a company that I was the chief operations officer for sold a product. I really wasn't in the sales side of things there. Um, but we had a product that could eliminate from a company like AT&T, like 300 engineers, software product. It would put 300 engineers out of business in a year after implementing it. And it was a little bit of a hard sell because they really didn't want to get rid of those people. A lot of those higher-end engineers that I'm talking about had been in the company a long time. And some of them were the ones you know you had to get past to get to somebody to sell the product to. So it was a bit of a challenge. So at a point where they're not hiring any of those people, and, and, and you know, you got millions of people working for a company that big, or tens of thousands of people working for a company that big just in the Atlanta area, uh, getting rid of a few hundred... Uh, People don't want to do it. Then there's a cost. Maybe it pays back in the long term, but there's an upfront cost. Then there's the uncertainty. Will it really work? Then there's a transitional period. I got to have people that stay loyal to me while we're in a transition that's eliminating them. There's a lot of reasons not to do it. There's two things that push companies over the edge with this. One is cost. When cost becomes so low and it becomes so easy to do, There's no reason not to try it. They try it. And the other is, I need to get more done, and I can't. I don't care what I pay, I can't get the people. 
This is the crossover. You're looking at it right now. This will probably be the last time we see uh, an employment market like this in the lives of most adults. I don't know what's going to happen 50 years from now. I really don't. But we're, we're probably not going to see this type of a boom again when we come down the other side of this. Because this is the path that leads to the widespread automation that we've been talking about for two and a half, three years. Because why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it? Let's see. Let's think of every single sector we can think of, and let's do three or four of them so we don't run the show for hours and hours and hours today and go ahead and get wrapped up on this. Let's just think of a couple sectors. You're a trucking company. You've been watching Tesla and other companies with these automated and autonomous trucks, and you know they have some problems and they're still working some kinks out, and you don't want the liability of it or whatever. But now you're at a point where you need to hire 500 drivers and you can only find 50. Are you going to start looking at this technology a little harder or not? Okay. You're a tech company. You do software development. You know that there's certain bots and automation tools and things like that that can automate a lot of what your software engineers do and reduce the number of software engineers that you have. Up until now, you have been of the opinion that it makes a hell of a lot of sense to have that human eye on all those things because that's going to be your differentiator in your product line. And besides, hell, you can get another one of them from India and they're not that expensive. You now need to hire 50 software engineers and you can only find five that are qualified to do the job. Are you willing to invest in technology, which is what you build, by the way, that will let the people you have do more with less at this point? You kind of have to, don't you? If you can only find five of the 50 you're looking for, and that's the situation companies are in right now, don't you have to start looking for ways to make the five be able to do what the 50 would? Let's think of another thing. Because they're saying, well, there's a labor shortage for people that want to pick avocados. It's all because of Trump. It's all because. Never mind Obama deported more people than any president in the history of the United States. Okay? It's Trump, because I hate Trump, and a MAGA hat did it, whatever. Uh, there's a shortage of avocado pickers. Could it just be there's a shortage of labor? But if you are an avocado farmer, and you've always had these people that fill up a basket of avocados at a piecework rate, and for whatever reason it is, it doesn't matter, you need a 1,000 pickers in your fields, and you can only get 500. Are you going to start investing in automation to do more with less people? Especially if you think you're looking at a trend and that 500 might become 200 and eventually 100. Are you now willing to make the investment? So I, I guess I would say, what sector would you be in with a labor shortage in the state of technology evolution right now where you wouldn't consider the technological solution to your problem that is a solution of a labor shortage? If you have a restaurant chain and you need more servers... But, hey, you saw all these kiosks that these, these chain restaurants are putting in, and you realize that you can basically eliminate servers, and instead of having for every, let's say, three servers, you have one food runner, you basically have one food runner for the same number of tables that three servers and one food runner did, and the machine does all the work. And you need 500 servers because you have a big chain restaurant, and you can only find 100. Are you going to look to technology as your solution? 
You see what I'm saying. And there are certain jobs that are a little more difficult to automate than others. But we're getting to a point where almost all of this stuff can be automated. If you build cars, might you not eventually start eliminating the mechanic by the design itself? If we designed the car to be serviced by robots, it could be. The reason robots don't service cars right now is because, well, even if you're looking at a Ford, servicing this one, that one, and the other one is different. What if they were designed to be serviced uniformly? Don't you think you could build a system where when a customer brought their car in or your own car that's a subscription service car drives itself in to get serviced, that it pulls in and then there's a lift that just automatically knows, oh, this is a Model XYZ? And it goes, and it just sets the lift exactly where it needs to be, and an arm comes out, and it off comes an oil filter. Hood pops open, right? You can't automate it opening hood on a car. And glug, 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 a certain amount of oil goes in there. Thing comes out, checks all the tires. Well, the car already knows what the tire pressure is. It just tells the machine, and it just adjusts the tire pressure. A little laser beam comes out and examines the tires. I don't even need a mechanic now to do an oil change. You don't think we, but why would you do that right now? Mechanics are useful. They're available. But what happens when you need 100 mechanics and you can only find 10? And you see a trend as a company. At some point, does not this shortage of labor actually hasten the technology evolution? And the answer is, of course it does. Don't you start taking in your truck drivers and say, well, these automated trucks, actually what they're best suited for is OTR work over the road, long distance. And then you start repositioning your drivers so that the driver takes a truck to a certain point, maybe even drops a trailer at a certain point, and one of these autonomous rigs picks the trailer up and takes it from freaking New York to L.A. across the interstate system without ever leaving the highway. And then it gets to a docking station in L.A. and an actual driver pulls a rig up under there. Now that driver is picking up seven or eight rigs, seven or eight trailers a day doing local connections. And is not that just getting the logistics to eventually eliminate that driver. So it's really good for him right now. He gets to stay home more. But what's the logical progression once the system starts into motion? This is where we are. Is it a five-year, a 10-year, or a 20-year process? The answer is, I don't know. But it's probably closer to 10 than it is to 20. Before we really start to feel it. Before it starts to swing the other way. And let me tell you something else. No matter how this automation thing works out, the, the more an economy booms, the worse the pain of the next downturn is. And we've probably never seen an economy boom like this before. And that's not like, I'm mad that Trump is successful, so I have to point out the bad part. I'm, I'm anti-political in these types of evaluations. This is just reality. We live in a boom and bust cycle. That's the reality. And the manipulation that we have from the state makes that cycle unavoidable. In a true free market system, booms and busts are very short-term events. And the long-term trend is actually very stable. Unfortunately, that's not what we have. We don't have a free market. We have a contrived and controlled market because if nothing else, what's controlled more than anything else is money. And if you're using a throttle 
to control money. And using a money throttle to pick winners and losers, you can never get out of the boom and bust cycle. And that's where we are. So when you see all of this, man, there's more jobs than people, I agree. So if you're a company and you have millions or billions of dollars to invest and you'd like to invest in people so you could make more shit because you have the ability to make and sell more shit, but you can't get the people, what are you going to invest in? Folks, you're going to invest in the technology that does what the people used to do. Because that's the only, and see, it's self-serving. It has nothing to do with you know emotion. It has nothing to do with any kind of thing that's irrational. It has nothing to do with evil technocrats trying to take over the world. You know, it has nothing to do with AI rising up like the machines in uh, Terminator. It's just a logical thing. I'm a cl- I'm a company. I need people. I can only get a percentage of the people that I need. I'm now losing business because of a lack of productivity. Not even because my people suck. I just can't get enough. I need technology to make up the difference. How long is it before the technology that makes up the difference begins to take an effect and a toll on the people that were doing the job? And then there's also the part where we did it to ourselves. I'll say this at the end because it's, it's not right if I don't. I mean, one of the reasons we have shortages right now is because people won't do the work. Um... The average 20-year-old today, if you said, hey, how'd you like a job framing houses? I don't want to do that, man. I'm going to college. My dad said that's beneath me. That's for illegal Mexicans to do. That's why we need them, or whatever their answer is. They don't want to do it. How many of them do you think could? How many? Because, like, when I first moved to Texas, I took a part-time job for a while doing exactly that. I know how to frame because within a week I learned how to do it. Like, And the guy's like, yeah, we pay $10 an hour cash. Uh, if you want to work, let me know. I'll pick you up at your house. You don't even need to drive. We need people that bad. I'll pick you up every day. We pay cash. Okay. Okay, sure. So I did that for a while, and I learned how to frame. And it was cash money, so yeah, you, you get where that goes, right? Um, how many 20-year-olds, you know, I was, I was 21 at the time when that happened, after I got out of the Army, after I moved to Texas. How many 21, 22-year-olds do you think would, would say yes to that offer today? We have, you know... Why, why can't you find enough welders? Because, well, I don't want to learn to weld. I'm going to get a degree in sociology. right? So that has had an impact to a degree. But even in the sectors that people have degrees in, there's shortages. And not just in high-end STEM. This is a shortage across the board. Trucking companies, agricultural companies, high-tech companies, restaurants. This is a shortage. Medical industry, there's a shortage everywhere. There's only one solution to it. Technology. So watch is indeed, my friends, we live in interesting times. As we wrap up today, let me remind you, one of the ways you can help support the show is to do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Today I have an item at tspaz, tspaz.com, that is really cool. It's not expensive. And it is a great way to make your life a little bit better in the kitchen. You guys know me. I'm passionate about cooking, and I love to cook, and I love to use the best ingredients. Um, the product I have for you guys today, I've, I've brought this to you before. It's called Maldon Sea Salt Flakes. This is a specially made salt. In the end, it's just salt. But it's a flaky salt that's made in the shape of like these little pyramids. And it's crunchy. And if and it is a sea salt, right? Which I, I believe personally is a better thing for us than most refined salts. Um, 
But if you were to just take this in like a recipe called for a pinch of salt and you threw it in there, I, I would think you're wasting because it's it's not expensive, but it's more expensive than typical, like kosher salt. This is what I would call a finishing salt. This is something when you put those grilled vegetables on a plate and you hit with a little salt before you take it to your, your friends or your family, you, you use this. Because not only does it give that great lift of flavor that salt does, it has this unique texture and crunch. It's really cool. And they make a smoked variety. And this stuff is fantastic. Um, you know, it's salt. It's not really that complicated to talk about or anything. But I definitely recommend that you check it out. Remember, if you see it on tspaz.com, I own it. I bought it. I'll probably buy it again. I don't ask you to spend money on things that I don't spend my own money on. Maldon sea salt is something that you know I use in my cooking all the time. Again, as a finishing salt, especially the, the smoked. The smoked sea salt is just so awesome. When I found that, I was like, where has this stuff been my whole life? And remember, if you shop at T-Spaz, no matter what you buy, you help support us in the work that we do. And all of my reviews are there, broken down by categories in alphabetical order. You can see everything that I've ever reviewed on tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. Uh, this is Johnny Cash Week, but of course we ended up with it being on this week, and I had Wednesday off. Most of us had Wednesday off for the 4th of July. And so I made a little change. Uh, John Adam, who puts the, the playlist together for me, uh, had this song set for Friday this week. But it would have ended up getting pushed to Monday of next week. We'll play the other Johnny Cash song that was left for the five Johnny Cash songs on Monday to rebalance the equation, so to say. Uh, this song he picked for a Friday because I think it's a great song for a Friday. And it's called The Man in Black. And, of course, Johnny Cash was known as The Man in Black. And he, he wrote this song all the way back in, uh, I don't know when he wrote it, but it was released in 1971. Uh, and here's what it says. Pretty interesting stuff on this and kind of all over the map with the explanation. Uh, it says, Johnny Cash always wore black clothes, and he wrote this song to help explain why. Quote, I wear the black for the poor and the beaten down, living in the hopeless, hungry side of town. I wear it for the prisoner who has long paid for his crime, but is there because he's a victim of the times. End quote. At first, Cash and his band wore black shirts because it was the only matching color they had in their wardrobes. Cash wore other colors on stage early in his career, but claimed he liked wearing black both on and off stage. The Christian rock band One B Bad Pig recorded this on their 91 album, I Scream Sunday, uh, with Cash singing backup. Uh, people often, this quote, people often say to me, tell me why Johnny Cash wore black. Cash's drummer W.S. Fluke Holland said to Moho Magazine April 2012. And I say it's real simple. Back then, when we'd leave on tour, the longer you could wear clothes you had on, the better it was. So if you had on black, it wouldn't show dirt as quickly as anything else, end quote. Moho reports Cash's eldest daughter, Roseanne, saying in 2008, there was a deeper complexity to this song. There's so many levels to it, she explained. One is saying, I'm wearing this symbol for the downtrodden and the poor. The other was much more subtle to me. It reflected the sadness and convulsions Uh, just that mythic dark night of the soul that he went through so many times. I Meaning, of course, her father, Johnny Cash. And Johnny had his rough moments in time. This song also shows its time. There's definitely some lines in this song that clearly are talking about those currently serving as draftees in the Vietnam War. And there's lines that clearly pay homage to the soldiers that were fighting at the time and fought before including many of them that died convinced that we were all on their side. 
And you'll notice that he didn't say died con- uh, knowing that they were all on our, that we were all on their side. He said convinced. There's a reason for that too. This really is a deep and meaningful song. Sometimes we have really exciting songs on uh, on Fridays, and sometimes we have ones that make us reflect. This is that second kind. With that, I do hope you enjoy your weekend. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Well, you wonder why I always dress in black, why you never see bright colors on my back, and why does my appearance seem to have a somber tone? Well, there's a reason for the things that I have on. I wear the black for the poor and the beaten down Living in the hopeless, hungry side of town I wear it for the prisoner who has long paid for his crime But is there because he's a victim of the time I wear the black for those who've never read Or listened to the words that Jesus said About the road to happiness Through love and charity Why you think he's talking straight to you and me Well, we're doing mighty fine, I do suppose In our streak of lightning cars and fancy clothes But just so we're reminded of the ones who are held back Up front there ought to be a man in black For the sick and lonely old For the reckless ones whose bad trip left them cold I wear the black in mourning For the lives that could have been Each week we lose a hundred fine young men And I wear it for the thousands who have died Believing that the Lord was on their side hundred thousand who have died believing that we all were on their side well there's things that never will be right I know and things need changing everywhere you go but till we start to make a move to make a few things right you'll never see me wear a suit of white oh I'd love to wear a every day and tell the world that everything's okay but I'll try to carry off a little darkness on my back till things are brighter I'm the man in black 